Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors podcast series. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and editor of top1000funds.com. I'm joined today by Professor Ian Begg, who is Professor at the European Institute, the London School of Economics and Political Science. His main research work is on the political economy of European integration and EU economic governance. He has directed and participated in a series of research projects on different facets of EU policy, and his current works include studies on the governance of EU economic and social policy, the economic and fiscal consequences of Brexit, and evaluation of EU cohesion policy. Today, we're here to talk about Brexit and the impact on the UK economy, but I'm also keen to discuss the current economic and social turmoil created by this global health pandemic and the robustness of the European Union to deal with this economically. So welcome, Professor. G'day and good Australian. (laughs) Reports in the last 24 hours predict the UK economy to contract by between 2.6 and 5.4% this year. What are your forecasts for the UK economy and indeed the impact on the global economy because of this crisis? I see that the IMF came out earlier this week saying that we will have a global recession and quite a severe one this year, but there'll be a recovery in 2021. How does this all sit from your point of view? Well, the the obvious first answer to give is two words. It depends, because we really don't know how severe the hit from the lockdowns being imposed across Europe and across the world in relation to coronavirus are going to affect the economy. You could envisage a scenario under which is quite severe and therefore discussing whether it's 2.6 or 5.1 really is a pointless exercise. It could well be five times those figures if the lockdown persists for a long time. Significant sectors of the economy simply are not functioning. You think of tourism, retail, travel, the facts on manufacturers who are unable to produce. All of these are sectors which are simply going to be closed down for the duration of the the lockdowns. Now, whether it lasts three weeks or three months is, is going to be the critical variable. It's it's a bit different from any previous crisis where we broadly knew what was going on. Even in a financial crisis, just over a decade ago, the playbook was there. You, you know what, knew what to do about it because you could say you have to recapitalize banks. Once you're through the worst of it, you know there's going to be a a slow recovery and the the banks will start to function again. With this virus, we just don't know the extent of the lockdown. And while there might be one or two sectors like healthcare, which are going to boom during it, the, the great part of the economy is going to be affected. So it could be a much more significant, sharp recession, after which, assuming the virus is conquered, you'd expect a very sharp recovery. The timing of all of this is so uncertain that her predictions are almost pointless. So given those conditions, and my audience is uh, large institutional investors, what advice do you give them in terms of how to deal with this from uh, an investment point of view? Presumably being very prudent and risk-averse would be an appropriate way forward? Well, the, the trouble is that the markets have already reacted very severely to this with the sharp downturns in all the major stock markets, the fact that uh, 
there has been a, a rush to cash. All of these are reactions that you'd expect when you have a, a recession with such unpredictable consequences. It may well be that we've seen the worst of the market reaction in the jargon that it's been priced in. And therefore, what we're looking for now is when does the recovery start? So if, if you're sitting, if you're an investor sitting on cash, you're looking for the turning point, trying to work out when it's suddenly time to start buying again those shares which you have to value, for example, in, in the oil industry, and say, right, time to pounce. Is that your view, by the way, that now it's, uh, it's time to start looking at opportunities? It's time to be assessing them and then trying to work out when the turning point will come. And that's, that's going to be the trick. It's the reason these uh, institutional investors have paid the big bucks. <laughs> so arguably Brexit and assessing the impact of Brexit has become more complicated because of the current market conditions. The UK's decision to leave the EU has uh, widely um, been recognised that it will have a wide range effect on the British economy, but the scale and exact effects are hard to calculate. What do you think the predictable impacts might be and what are we not so sure about, particularly given the current volatility? Well, you have to preface any answer to that question with by ab abstracting from what's going on with the virus because it's, it's almost like saying the virus will be a chapter in the development of all advanced, in fact, all, all economies globally, and then we'll see how underlying things re return to influence what's going on. Now, in relation to, to Brexit, there are a number of predictable things. You can say that it's probably going to cause a slowdown in trade between the UK and the, European, the rest of the European Union. And that slowdown will depend on what sort of deal is eventually negotiated to determine the future relationship between the UK and the EU, the future economic relationship. It's expected that uh, in, the, in the absence of a, a very uh, liberal free, free trade deal, that the UK economy will take some sort of hit. But you need to put that in perspective. It's a hit compared with the growth that would otherwise occur rather than a decline. Over the, the years in which Brexit has been analysed, we've looked at a number of scenarios for what the future relationship would be. There's a very close relationship, such as Norway had, that has the, the smallest impact on the British economy. It might mean the loss of a couple of percentage points of GDP compared with the underlying growth rate. So let's say it had been 1.5% per annum over 20 years. That would be around 30%. Instead, you'd get to 28%. If it's a Canada-style trade deal, quite a close trading relationship with a little bit of um, services thrown in and investor protection thrown in, then the hit to the British economy will be five percentage points, so re reducing 30 to 25 over uh, uh, 20 years. There has been some talk about what, what's been called the Australian model, which has been code for the UK trading with the rest of the EU simply on World Trade Organization terms. And there the hit to the British economy will be to reduce growth by eight percentage points. So on the same basis from 30 to 22. Now, these are all scenario based. There's a lot of uh, potential influences that could alter this. For example, if uh, all of a sudden we had a wonderful new trade deal with the US, and don't forget that Donald Trump has 
used to be promising a, a trade deal within about 20 minutes, then you could see a, a switch of UK exports, UK trade generally, UK investment flows away from the European Union and towards North America. I think it's unrealistic to believe that you'll get much in in the way of increase of trade of significance with the old Commonwealth because it's just too far away. And that's that's something that has to be considered in evaluating these different scenarios. I think this uh, interesting point, this connectivity to the global economy, and it's something that you highlighted in your article, No Longer the Economy Stupid, published in The Economist Voice, which is a debate going on between the Remainers and the Brexiteers, where you say that for convinced Brexiteers, a UK unshackled from the EU will rapidly transform itself to be able to take advantage of opportunities in emerging markets and other dynamic parts of the global economy. But for Remainers, they see distancing the UK from its largest market as an egregious act of self-harm. From an economist's point of view, can you give us some evidence to support either or both of these points of view? Yes, there is a pretty well-established proposition in economics. I say proposition because it's as much an empirical finding as a theory that there is a, a gravity model that influences the extent of trade with other countries. Put very simply, you trade most with big countries and with countries closest to you. And it's, it's a bit like Newtonian gravity. It's the, the square of the distance that influences how much you trade. Britain, Britain up to now has been trading eight times as much with the European Union as with Japan, a much more distant economy. And if, if you break down the, the reasons for this, it's partly transport costs, although they're relatively trivial these days, but it's just simply also the connections. I'm speaking to you in Australia. You're the best part of 12 hours away from me. That makes it, that makes it harder to do business. I know we've got all the electronic uh, means of uh, communication these days, but nevertheless, it seems empirically to be still proven that there is a, a gravity effect. And the second empirical point to make is where do you start from? Roughly half of Britain's exports up to now have been to the European Union. Big flows going to Germany, France, and some of the other big European countries. But the, although the US is Britain's biggest overall market, that's the size of the US economy, when you look at the Britain's trade to several potential reorient, countries that we could re- reorientate towards, could be Australia, could be uh, some countries in Latin America. It could be India, which we think of as a massive market with 1.3 billion consumers. The share of Britain's trade going to those countries is small. To put it in perspective, Britain exports more to Poland than it does to India. The, ex- the share of Britain's exports going to India is just over one percentage point. And with, with that, even if you doubled it, you'd get to two percentage points and you wouldn't offset the loss of Poland. Not to say that we'd lose everything in Poland, but you have to look at the arithmetic in this to to work, work out the probabilities. Now, the reasons that it might change include the fact that there are new opportunities. We know that emerging markets are almost certain to be growing faster than traditional markets. Europe is a slow-growing economy. Japan is a slow-growing economy. Even the U.S. is a slow-growing economy. But China continues to be a, a rapidly-growing economy, and there are new competitors coming up on China's coattails. 
those new countries will ex- will expand their share of global trade, and Britain, like every other country, can expect to benefit from it. So that there is some dynamic in this, and some justification for the idea that there is a, a growing global market outside the European Union. But it's trading off your biggest trading partner for the prospect of doing well in other ones. And to throw one other statistic at you, Britain, even today, exports more to Ireland a country with under 5 million population, than to China. So it's clear that the relationship with the EU needs to remain intact and, and potentially actually improve. So what do you think the most important policy decisions might need to be to reset the UK's economic relationship with the EU? There, there are two aspects to the future relationship. The first is trade. What sort of trade deal will, will the UK arrange with the rest of the European, with Europe, the European Union? I keep saying the rest of the European Union because that's what I've been used to for, for decades. And if it's a, a free trade area, then trade and manufacturers ought to be relatively unscathed as a result of leaving the European Union. There's a bigger question over trade and services where the UK is a very prominent service exporter and it's been a growing share of British trade because that depends less on tariffs. After all, there's no such thing as a tariff on a service as on the regulatory environment and the two sides. So in combination with the trade deal, above all covering goods, you you have to work out what the future regulatory deal is because it's these non-tariff barriers or behind-the-border barriers which are most influential in the service sector. In the service sector, a big export for the UK is is financial and business services. If there are deterrents to trading with other European countries, then that could be a significant hit to what is, after all, a sector uh, on a, a scale similar to manufacturing in the UK economy. There is a lot of technical language in this. Equivalence is one where the the prospect of equivalence is that if you have regulation of your let's say banking industry which is similar to what the europeans have then you can assign each other the the points for having a system that, that respects what both sides want but if you don't have equivalence it becomes that much harder for a financial intermediary to operate in a, in a european country from the uk so these are the, the areas of major negotiation there are in addition a number of areas where there are technical technical barriers to be or technical issues to be resolved one which is almost surreal is fisheries fisheries is a tiny proportion of the economy of either the european union or the uk but it's a very high profile one not least because the, the fishing industry, fishermen, I think it is, rather than women, are seen as somehow plucky and deserving of intense support. And on both sides, they, they have a very strong hold over government. The UK wants to restrict the access of European boats to British waters. The EU wants to retain the rights they have as being part of the European Union, and that is set to be a, a flashpoint in the negotiations. It ought to be resolvable easily, but politically it's going to be difficult. So these are just some examples of, of, of industries where things become more tricky. So, Professor, let's have a talk for a minute about the structure of the EU. And this has been talked about a lot, but I'm interested in your views. We've got a monetary union without a fiscal union. In your view, was that fraught from the beginning? 
Yes, I think what happened there was that there is a, a theory in economics called the optimal currency area, and it was broadly agreed by economic analysts that the combination of countries that were merged into the euro was not an optimal currency area. Germany had one perspective on, on how things were done and France had another. And those differences between France and Germany have continued to pervade the discussion about how things go in in the governance of the Eurozone. Now, what was what became clear during the, the, the first financial crisis from 2007 onwards and then in the more severe Euro sovereign debt conference, uh, crisis was that there were significant flaws in the architecture of European monetary integration, which had been masked by the relatively benign conditions of its first decade, the, the period from 1999 to 2009. Indeed, it's worth recalling that in, in 2009, European countries were saying this is really an Anglo-Saxon financial crisis started in the US, continued in, in the UK and in Ireland. Our continental model is far better. And it was only when Greece erupted as a significant problem that it really became abundantly clear that the European model of governance was lacking in things that it really did need. For example, there was a an absence of a, a crisis management facility. That's why the IMF had to be brought in. I'm sure Australians would regard it as strange if the IMF had to be brought in to manage a crisis between Australian states. That should, that should be something the federal government in Australia does. Same in the US. There was an absence of big funds for a rescue. When Greece had to be bailed out, there wasn't really a bank account that they could go to and say, here's where we get the money for this. And it had to be cooked up over a weekend, a very fraught weekend in, in May 2010. There were concerns about the, the nature of an analysis of imbalances. Greece clearly was, a, was a, a problem of a public sector spending too much and getting into difficulty. But Ireland and Spain were in crisis for entirely different reasons, which was that the banking system had overloaned to the property sector. And when that became evident, the state had to step in to, to deal with it. What this then exposed was the, the absence of a common financial area across the countries covered by the euro. And that's now been given the phrase banking union. It is nevertheless worth making the point that since 2011, very significant changes have taken place in the governance of, of the European Union and in particular of the Eurozone. We've had two-thirds two of the way towards banking union. There is now a, a common supervision of banks, at least the largest banks, because Germany had resisted exposing its own uh, rather volatile savings bank sector to it. There is also a common resolution approach where big banks can be resolved across Europe if they get into difficulty. What has not been achieved is common deposit insurance, which was put forward in 2011 as the third arm of a, a sensible banking union. And there's still some ambiguity about whether there is a, a financial backstop if things do go wrong. There, is, there was the creation of a, a new institution called the European Stability Mechanism, which became a permanent and legally entrenched fund for bailing out countries. That could serve as the backstop for banking difficulties, but it's, it's one of these things that's un been under review for quite some time in, in the EU. 
So do you think that structure and the complexity and almost incompleteness of some of the structure means that Europe doesn't live up to its full potential of its economic weight, if you like, in terms of the global economy? Yes, and there are a number of reasons for that. First, the incomplete banking union means that there there isn't the same sort of certainty around the European financial system as with what is the comparable economy, namely the US. But it also reflects an ambiguity about whether the, the approach to this should be to control risk of financial crises or share the risk of financial crises. It's probably no surprise to you when I say that the, the creditor countries in Northern Europe are against sharing risk, whereas the, the debtor countries in Southern Europe are very much for sharing or pooling risk. And this battle between sharing and controlling has been raging now for some time. Greece, Spain, Italy, these are the countries which are very much in favor of, of sharing risk, and France tends to side with them, whereas Germany, the Nordic countries, the, the Benelux countries, they, they're the ones that try to resist sharing because when it comes to the crude politics of it, the German taxpayer doesn't want to be responsible for Greek or Italian debts. And this, the politics of this are what's, the, what's most critical. <clears throat> you also have the fact that uh, Europe does not have a federal budget to speak of. There's a budget for the European Union's activities, which amounts to one percentage point of European GDP. That is, one third of that is spent on agricultural subsidies and a further th- third on economic development activities. There's a, were it not for the virus, there, there would be a continuing battle going on right now in Brussels about the, the budget for the next seven years. And there they're arguing about the difference between 1.07% of GDP and 1.09% of GDP. Trivial difference. And that means that there is no macroeconomic stabilization capacity at European level. All the macroeconomic stabilization has to be done by individual countries. Look at what happened in the US. The US is able, in the context of the the virus crisis, to work towards a $1 trillion injection of cash into the American economy. The European federal level, which, which is not federal, simply cannot do that because it doesn't have the authority or the resources. So this means that if you look at the euro as an international currency, it lacks financial instrument that the US has, the treasury bond. There is no comparable European treasury bond. There's plenty of talk about creating a so-called safe asset at European level, but a lack of agreement precisely because of this this, uh, contest between risk controlling and risk sharing. And that means that the international role of the euro is relatively muted compared with the dollar. It's still the second second most uh, significant international currency. 20% or so of global reserves are in euros compared with 60% in dollars. And a sprinkling spread across a, a number of other countries. But the, U, the euro is also not used as a vehicle currency for transactions. Oil is priced in dollars. Other major commodities tend to be priced in dollars, not in euros. So the euro is lagging behind all the time in this as an international currency. This may change. This, there is now something of a, a push coming from Brussels and from Frankfurt to say the euro is now at, reached the age of matu- traditional age of maturity, 21, and it's time to push its international role. 
but it will be a slow change and relies on a combination of completing economic and monetary union, all the things that I talked about earlier, plus the concerns about creating a safe asset that would uh, rival the Treasury bond. Both of these are some way to being completed. Professor, do you think that there's been any uh, sort of copycat actions or policies by other EU members? Are we looking down the track at others exiting the union as well and, and more instability in terms of the European zone? I will start with a categorical no to that question and tell you a number of reasons. One is that nearly every other country in the EU has been deeply appalled by how difficult it was for Britain to negotiate Brexit. They were they were both fascinated and horrified by the shenanigans going on in the British Parliament last autumn, indeed the whole of 2019, successive votes being lost by the government, the government the Prime Minister falling, general election, and so on. So I think it became a, a salutary message to the rest of the, the European Union that uh, this was not a path that they lightly wanted to embark on. Now, there are tensions. There, there are always tensions in the European Union. There, there are countries in Central and Eastern Europe, notably Poland and Hungary, which are under scrutiny because of their attitude towards democratic norms, the the freedom of the judiciary, the freedom of the press, these have all been contested. There have been fights in Europe over how to, to deal with migration. And here there's a nice irony because Germany, which is so hostile to risk sharing when it comes to financial matters, very much wants every other country to engage in risk sharing when it comes to dealing with migration. And these tensions are always there in the background. But despite all of this, I see no movement anywhere to push for a, a further exit, whether it's Frexit in France or Italsit in, in uh, Italy. There are parties which flirt with it. The, the far right in France and in Italy has, has occasionally said, oh, we're going to have a referendum on leaving the European Union, or maybe we'll have a referendum on leaving the Euro rather than the European Union. But all that talk faded away when they saw how difficult Brexit was. So I come back to my initial answer to you. I see no push at the moment for anybody else leaving the European Union. As the British Parliament did a, a favour to the European Union in that context, I guess. Um, Professor, let's close with a reflection on the global economy and the geopolitical and economic and social uncertainty that we're facing at the moment. Do you think the tension created by the COVID-19 global health pandemic is going to mark the end of globalisation. Here, here again, I'm inclined to start by saying no, although what the nuance that I put onto it is that uh, I think the globalisation will change shape. The genie of globalisation is already out of the bottle and, and in that respect, you can't put it back in. We are accustomed to trading across borders. There are complicated supply chains across borders. Now, some of these supply chains are being questioned. They were questioned particularly when the crisis struck in, in China and so many companies realized how dependent they were on supplies coming from China. So there may be some reassessment of supply chains, but what you're trading off there is economic efficiency and 
practice for consumers lower cost against the greater certainty of making it yourself or dealing with dealing with the inputs yourself. I don't see a strong disposition to change that. Globalization we can characterize as being in the past about expansion of trade, subsequently perhaps expansion of inter international investment. I'm sure that you're your, your major investors will, will regard that second part as being something that's their, their their bread and butter activity. But it's also about technology flows. It's about migration. It's about the supply of skilled workers. It's about culture. And it's about the spread of knowledge. And in, in these latter aspects of globalization, I, I can see further evolution of globalization taking place. To put this in perspective, the you can maybe point to three chapters of globalization. Up, up to the late 1980s, it was expansion of trade and expansion of investment. Subsequently, you saw a significant expansion of supply chains, uh, of uh, offshoring or of other forms of outsourcing with hub and spoke economies. Germany is a hub economy, and some of its spokes reach out into Central and Eastern Europe. Some go further. The U.S. is a hub economy, but some of its spokes reach out to China. Uh, an Apple is an Apple phone is, is manufactured in in China, but the content is is American or sometimes some cases European. So these are things where you there's an unbundling has taken place of the production to rebundle into the finished product. And some analysts think that there's going to be a further unbundling where you will get to major service activities being facilitated across borders because of information technology advances and the use of artificial intelligence. In the past, for, for the richer Western European and other mature OECD economies, the threat was that low-cost production of a good or a component would uh, take away their jobs. And you, you saw some negative effects in some of the Euro southern European countries like Portugal and Italy. In the future, the, what's more likely is that a, a number of service activities that we are accustomed to having in our richer economies will become more globalized. There's already a trend towards that, for example, in medical diagnostics, where you, you do the scan, send the results to India, the results are analyzed and flash back to you in, your, in Australia or Western Europe. That could extend to legal services, accountancy services, where, where it's simply easily outsourced. So I think there's a, a further wave of globalization, but maybe with a different element to it, based on technology, based on, on uh, su the supply of uh, relatively qualified labor. Where this all ends up is, is hard to predict, but uh, I don't see an end to globalization despite the virus. Professor, let's finish where we started and having a look at the outlook for the UK and global economy. Is there anything that you want to add to that in terms of the context of institutional investors and how they should be looking at, you know, relatively short term over the next six months and year, keeping in mind that they are very long term investors over 30 year periods? Well, once again, everything has to be qualified in, in relation to the the virus. Narrowly for the UK, I think we, you have to look at the, the continuing possibility that there will be no deal. There is so 
sure there'd be uncertainty, and this could uh, result in some fragmentation of supply chains connecting Western European countries with the United Kingdom. I think we'll see some shifts in the global economy, perhaps for wider reasons like uh, the, the emergence of a, a much more extensive concern about uh, environmental issues. I probably don't need to tell Australians much about that after what you endured this summer. That's going to shape some of the activities. There's almost certainly going to be an acceleration of the need to decarbonize. And for institutional investors, that's that's going to raise questions about where do you invest? Are, are there forms of energy in which there is an underinvestment at present, where there's a major investment that's going to be have, to have to be made in the future? It's worth looking uh, geographically. Where Where is the growth going to be? And I think that... Uh, some of the growth that uh, has been latent in emerging markets is going to become more extensive. You will see a potential awakening in Africa. The Chinese are investing long-term in this through their Belt and Road Initiative, and it may well be that uh, that opens up through infrastructure some of the possibilities, and the infrastructure investments in, in Africa and other emerging markets may be very significant for international investors. But hey, I'm I'm an academic commentator. They're the guys who should know this. Professor Ian Begg, you've been very generous with your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. 